Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news ahead on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of November. Coming up on the program, a focus on crime in the country. There's a new World Bank report out on the economic impact, why police in Cape Town are targets and why murder numbers are not improving. We're also going to look at the parliamentary motion passed to close the Israeli embassy in South Africa and the tricky process of student funding. In the three months between July and September 2023, 6,945 South Africans were murdered. Let's look at those numbers. 77 people a day, or just over three an hour. That means in this half-hour program, one person in South Africa is likely to be murdered. We're going to look at the numbers every quarter, and they seem to change or never change. From the Institute for Security Studies, beginning our program today is Lizette Lancaster. And the first question, Lizette, is why are murder numbers in this country remaining at such high levels? We have been seeing a 77% increase in murder in the past 12 years between April 2011 and March 2023. And there are sort of two broad factors that have led to this increase. The first is that we are seeing more and more firearms in the hands of criminals, especially organized crime groups that have grown exponentially over the past decade. And the second is that South Africans are dealing with a lot of socioeconomic issues. One of the main drivers of violence in South Africa and internationally would be inequality and, of course, feelings of deprivation and marginalization. And we have been seeing that these perspectives and the actual numbers of inequality have actually increased over the past decade, especially also since COVID. And that trajectory alarmingly and tragically is set to continue. It is. We must be honest, it's a bit encouraging that we are seeing slight decreases over these six months of quarter one and two for the period April to end of September this year. It's the first time we've seen quarterly slight decreases. The first quarter it was like 3%. Now it's less than a percent. So that is encouraging because it is the first time we are seeing a type of stabilization, but at alarmingly high levels. Of course, it is anybody's guess whether that can be continued, especially as we go into the festive season. And we have unfortunately also seen that while the Western Cape have had stable murder rates 
over the past two or so years, they have now experienced almost an 11% increase in this quarter alone. So it shows you how fragile these figures are and how quickly they can escalate again, Mm. especially in the face of gang violence, organized crime, retaliations and vigilantism, these group activities that drive a mass type of murders and killings. So encouraging to see a very small stabilization. What do you think might be leading to that? Or is that figure simply anomalous? It is really difficult to determine. We are seeing some police activity. We have been seeing the task teams being quite successful in bringing down certain types of groups, such as some of the kidnappings, uh, syndicates, um, some of the illegal mining syndicates and some armed groups. However, the figures are not translating into decreases for, for instance, kidnapping. That's still growing. So it could be a number of factors. We know um, that you know, the, some of these areas in winter are quite volatile because of the socioeconomic conditions and inter- interpersonal sort of fights and conflicts taking place. And it could just be slightly less people were fighting with one another. But it doesn't mean that it is potentially um, a police driven success, if that makes any sense. It's not just murder, of course. Uh, A high number of sexual Mm. assault cases reported. Um, Are there specific strategies that we should be re-looking at to combat gender-based violence? We know that there's so much that still needs to be done on gender-based violence, but we are seeing at least because of the capacity and resources allocated to the um, family violent crime units that often deal with these cases, that we are seeing more detections of these cases, more court-ready cases. It is the one sort of category of crimes that we are seeing an increase in successful investigation. So that that is one thing. We can't say the same for other types of crime. But this is very much a societal issue. What we know works in, and has been proven to work in places like Kenya is um, education in schools of norms and values around gender. For instance, where children, boys and girls, or high school teens are actually engaging in very evidence-driven training programs or part of their curriculum to change these norms. And what they found is that young men are then less likely to use violence and women are less likely to accept violence as a norm that is just acceptable norm in society. And we know in our societies that violence, whether it's on our streets or in our homes and in our communities, are normalized. So it's that added issue that we need to teach our children it's not acceptable to commit crime or violence, but also not in terms of the gender norms that we sit with. Thank you very much for that assessment from the Institute for Security Studies, Lizette Lancaster. Thank you.
Now, worryingly, seven Cape Town police officers were murdered in the space of just three months, according to the latest courtly crime statistics that we have been reflecting on. So what is happening in the city that makes law enforcement officers so vulnerable? Joining us now is Police Oversight and Community Safety MEC Regan Allen. A very warm welcome to you. So why do you think police officers in the city are increasingly vulnerable, particularly when they're off duty? Jeremy, thank you so much for bringing us into this particular conversation. We have been communicating on this matter because it's a major concern for us, considering that criminals have become extremely brazen in their approach. And on the eve of actually releasing our provincial stats on Monday, we also got news late Sunday evening with regards to an on-duty officer which was gunned down in the table view area, the nude area, and it's deeply upsetting considering that we are not wanting to lose any of our residents, let alone a SAPS officer or a law enforcement mm. officer in our province. So why do you think criminals are becoming more brazen? Largely, to put it bluntly, there is a breakdown of the entire criminal justice system. When we consider, Jeremy, that um, major cases are left unresolved, um, criminals are emboldened, and also the profilation of, of firearms within our communities. We have also noted that on the Sunday killing of an on-duty officer, his firearm um, was also taken by the perpetrators. Is there a growing reluctance, I wonder, or fear among police officers in Greater Cape Town to patrol certain areas, particularly in so-called high-risk zones, given the spate of killings that you're referencing? Jeremy, that's a very important question. When we engage in our priority areas, we are so aware that each and every SOP must ultimately be upheld. So when patrols are happening and when certain interventions are happening, we are very clear that it should be a joint operation. There should be sufficient manpower. And also, Jeremy, we have seen that in certain areas when we consider there is informal settlements and in those informal settlements it's very difficult to even police in those particular areas so when an officer goes into a particular area he or she is not fully aware of what could be around a particular dwelling and that places their life at risk um, but we are so aware of the joint operations and perhaps members and law enforcement officers to take extra uh, precautions because we wouldn't want um, our officers like i say um, it's deeply upsetting. Mm. We are even having conversations with the DPP's office with regards to if someone is arrested, that particular person, uh, once a case is presented to the prosecutor, that in such cases bail must, must be opposed. So given the considerations that you have just outlined to me, it would not be unfair to say that there is diminishing confidence in the South African police service to effectively do their jobs in these so-called no-go zones? To a large extent, yes, but it also boils down to the entire criminal justice system. When we consider, Jeremy, we have seen now that a number of legal interventions that we have requested, we need that to be actually um, ramped up. What we mean by that is that we have seen that these sections and these parts of the Criminal Procedure Act that we actually want to see more being utilized, that is section 158 and 153, but also for sting operations in 252 of the Criminal Procedure Act to actually occur more so that we can see an arrest and that 
arrest must lead to a conviction. Um, it's very evident that every research paper often um, states that an arrest and a conviction um, acts as a clear deterrent to crime. And when we have a low conviction rate, it actually emboldens those um, criminals um, and also places the members at risk. No, no one, turn, no one's going to um, disagree. No one's going to disagree with you in that respect, Mr. Allen. But the reality is, as mm. you and I have that conversation, we both know that those measures are not going to be implemented immediately. Right now, there is a policeman or a group of policemen mm. prepared to get into their vehicles and they are facing imminent danger. They might not get home to their mm. wives and children tonight. There's no short-term solution, is there? We're going to continue seeing this spate of attacks on police in Cape Town. It's the high density and the visibility that we require. And there's these ongoing conversations that we are having with the South African Police Service as well. I've often said... What are they telling you? What are they telling you? From my latest um, discussions with the PC, we have highlighted those 13 priority areas. Those priority areas are mapped. We have seen where crime is happening, at what time crime is happening. So when an officer or officers go on patrols in certain priority areas, they would be in certain groupings to ensure that there can be protection for that. And that makes perfect officer. sense. But I would suggest to you that in Cape Town's case and probably in many any other big high density metros we simply mm. don't have enough policemen we i've i've even said that we are 20 years behind in terms of the actual amount of resources in manpower that we require yes um, we are speaking literally from the same page if i see what we are what we have been saying the questions that you are posing it's so vital because that is where we are needing to go to ensure that we can actually get um, the proper resourcing allocation that we are having. Hence, we are consistently asking from the South African Police Service in our policing needs and priorities, which is a mandatory statutory process that the province must undertake. And that is what we have placed front and centre with the National Minister consistently. Let me just remind you again, seven Cape Town police officers murdered in the space of just three months. It is tragic. Regan Allen, thank you very much indeed. Let's continue with crime now. And there's a new report by the World Bank that says the impact of crime on South Africa's economic prospects is both high and broad-based. All of this is contained in the 14th edition of the South Africa Economic Update entitled Safety First, the Economic Cost of Crime in South Africa. And it's estimating, and wait for this figure, it's costing the country something in the region of 10% of GDP annually in terms of stolen property, protection costs, encompassing security and insurance and missed economic opportunities. Lead report author, World Bank senior economist, Ms. Benedicte Badua is with us now. Thank you very much for joining us. So expand on that for me a little bit if you can. How is it, how is crime significantly impacting the economy and which sectors in your opinion are most affected? Well, thank you very much for, for having me. So indeed, we're launching today our new economic update report. And um, so first, let me tell you, you know, why we look at the, the cost of crime. You know, we, we also um, look at, at South Africa's economic trajectory, and we see that it's you know, returned to a very weak trend that, that, that has characterized the country over the last 15 years. And, you know, that there is a need for, for structural reforms to, to, you know, boost growth and, and create jobs. And we do see that crime, you know, which is on everybody's mind, um, has, has a potential very high impact on, on the economy. However, we found very few studies that were uh, trying to quantify those costs. So what we're doing in, 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 in this uh, report is to try to, to 
you know, look at the, the, the cost that we're able to quantify and, and sum, sum them up to, to try to get a, a, an overall impact um, on, on the economy. So as you've mentioned, we, we find that the overall cost is at least 10% um, of GDP. And, you know, it comprises of what we call transfer costs, which are, you know, the direct losses uh, that households and, and businesses are, are suffering from, from thefts and, and, and robberies. And, um, and, and, and that's about 3% of GDP. Mm. We have protection costs, which is very high, around 4% of GDP, as both firms and households uh, try to protect themselves. And we have the last bucket, which is the most difficult to estimate, which is the, the opportunity cost. And, and that comprises of all the missed you know, economic opportunities uh, as a result of, of crime. And so if you take... You know, for example, copper theft on, on infrastructure networks, well, it, it uh, you know, damages uh, electricity, uh, infrastructure, telecommunication and transport. And that has, has you know, implications for the functioning um, of the economy. And uh, so, you know, overall, the, these costs are, are, are very large. And, and, you know, because we focus on a subset of only economic crimes and and um, we don't have data to quantify everything. You know, this estimate is, is, is a lower bound um, value. Let's look at that 10% if we can. It is a staggering amount. Are you able to benchmark this for us and tell me how South Africa's situation compares with global trends in crime and the economic impact? So, you know, it, 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 there is a lack of, of comparable data internationally, so we, we cannot do that for all the, the, the costs. However, for example, for, for firms, you know, we, we, we use um, a survey that is done by the World Bank, which is called the, the, the Enterprise Survey, and that is done in, in a lot of countries, and it has uh, questions on, on crime and, and security spending. And so for this specific cost to, to the formal business sector, um, that are the direct losses, you know, in terms of, of firm sales uh, to crime and the cost of security. You know, we do find that that these costs uh, are, are, are particularly high compared to, to um, other countries. Based on your ba- based on your study, are there effective policy measures that you can recommend be implemented to reduce crime in the country? Yes, the goal of this type of report is, is not to, to provide you know, prescriptive policies, but we have you know, a policy discussion. And you know, first, it's important to highlight that, that you know, crime is a multidimensional concept, and so it, it requires you know, intervention across a range of, of area. But definitely, you know, in, in increasing or restoring the capacity of the police and, and justice institution to... to you know, investigate, solve, and prosecute crime is is a priority uh, for South Africa. We've seen a, a decline in in that capacity, and that you know makes uh, you know in a sense crime more attractive or, or doesn't deter uh, crime because the, the the cost of committing crime compared to the benefits don't don't appear um, very high. However, you know, to sustainably reduce crime, we also see that. You know, you need to address root causes linked to, to poor socioeconomic outcomes. And, and so that requires, again, you know, boosting uh, higher and more inclusive growth. And also we see, you know, we, we do have in the report some, some examples of interventions um, internationally that have been successful. And we 
see that violence prevention can also you know be scaled up and 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 to support um crime reduction that has, has worked in other countries the difficulty of course is to strike a balance between immediate action and long-term strategies to combat crime yes exactly so i think you know that there are measures that can be you know, taken in the short term to strengthen the police and, and justice system. Uh, but as, as you know, you know, addressing, you know, social fragmentation, high inequality, that requires broad race, you know, reforms to, to increase the, the economic opportunities for, for all South Africans. And, and the, 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 the first chapter of the report, which discusses the, the recent development and outlook, you know, touches on, on, on you know, that, that growth and development trajectory and and what can be done to to improve it. World Bank Senior Economist Benedicte Badue, thank you very much for joining me on MoneyWeb at Midday. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. You'll be well aware that Parliament has voted in favour of a motion calling for the closure of Israel's embassy in Pretoria and the suspension of diplomatic ties. The action, of course, is largely symbolic because it would be up to President Ramaphosa's office on whether or not to implement the decision. But let's get a view on that and uh, another big developing story out of the Middle East today as I'm joined by Mohammed Desai, who is director of the Africa for Palestine organization. Mohammed, a very warm welcome to you. First of all, we are seeing today that Israel and Hamas have agreed on a hostage release deal and a four-day ceasefire. I'm assuming that uh, that is a move that is to be welcomed and uh, the cessation of hostilities is is a good thing. Uh, Hi, Jeremy. Uh, Thanks very much for covering this issue. Um, In many ways, it is welcomed, but with caution. And the reason is because it's a temporary pause. It's a pause uh, and a cessation of violence just for a few days. And this is simply uh, not enough. Um, And this is not about uh, wanting maximalist uh, gains here. It's just about uh, coming from a very human point of view. The amount of killings that are taking place on a daily basis is simply unacceptable. And therefore, we as civil society are calling for a permanent ceasefire A and B uh, for the the root causes of the conflict to be addressed Mm -hmm. with urgency. Again, it does provide a very small window of hope, and one hopes that uh, some kind of uh, diplomatic effort can be accelerated in order to lead to what you're calling for. Yes, I think I think to put this rather into the larger context, uh, the actions being taken by the South African government and other countries across the world in terms of their diplomatic protest against Israel's actions against the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, I think that these are measures in which uh, are all attempts in trying to hold Israel accountable for its violations of international law and as an attempt to end the human rights abuses that we are currently uh, viewing. Let's look at the decision that was taken in Parliament overnight. Uh, So Parliament voting in favour, as I say, of a motion calling for the closure of the embassy in Pretoria. Is it going to make any real difference, do you think, or do you agree with the assertion that it's largely symbolic? 
Uh, it's going to make a huge difference. Uh, it's absolutely uh, crucial and fundamental. I think that the countries of the world, the peoples of the world, have been in many ways pleading and begging uh, Israel to end its uh, current attacks, but also its ongoing oppression against the Palestinian people. It seems as if Israel is not uh, willing to engage in dialogue. Israel is not willing to engage in negotiations, and thus diplomatic and firm diplomatic action needs to be taken. Uh, we do feel that there is sufficient commitment being given by the governing party that the resolution being adopted by parliament is something that will be uh, carried uh, through and i think that it's up to us uh, the the electorate uh, to make sure that uh, our representatives in parliament ensure that the administration now uh, carries through with this uh, call from the legislature. Well, that's exactly it. That firm action that you talk about is entirely predicated on whether President Ramaphosa is going to follow through. It does put him in a difficult position now. He's got to act, hasn't he? I'm not sure if it's a difficult position because the president has in the last few weeks uh, been uh, quite accurate in his pronouncements on the issue and on the actions that have been taken. So we do think that it will be a natural uh, action for the president to take, but this time uh, with the backing and with the support of the legislature being in, uh, coming, from, uh, coming in such a vocal uh, manner. But uh, it does put pressure on him to act sooner rather than later, doesn't it? He can't. The, I, think I think the question I'm asking is he can't prevaricate on that. I, I, I don't want to discount the idea that it's a, a form of pressure, but I, I think that it's also a form of public support. South Africa's always positioned itself as peace brokers or as potential peace brokers in the region. Uh, given the decision that was taken in Parliament overnight, uh, that surely can't happen any longer, can it? It's firmly nailed its colours to the mast. I think that um, that the idea of negotiations, the idea of reconciliation, the idea of dialogue is a good idea, but that comes after certain uh, conditions have been met. We know this from our own struggle against apartheid. The father of reconciliation, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, was somebody who traveled the world calling on the world to impose boycotts and sanctions against our country. So I think that similarly, uh, there has been an attempt in the last 20 years since the Oslo Accords to try to to engage with Israel to end its human rights abuses. And unfortunately, the time has come that uh, serious and practical action needs to be taken uh, to hold Israel accountable for its violations of international law. Thank you very much for the assessment. Mohammed Desai is the director of the organization Africa for Palestine. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The National Student Financial Aid Scheme, we know it as NESFAS, has officially opened its application season for funding for the 2024 academic year. The Higher Education Minister says the organization has been working tirelessly to ensure that it improves on its processes for applications and ensuring quick turnaround times on funding decisions. The question is, of course, is that spin or have things really improved? Slomezi Skosana speaks for NESFAS and joins me on MoneyWeb at Midday. So what are those specific improvements that have been made uh, that the minister has reflected on? Uh, Good afternoon, uh, Jeremy and your listeners. Um, The specific ones that I can highlight, uh, you know, for you um, relates to uh, the um, application process itself, where we have, um, you know, refined the, uh, the application process in such a way that Firstly, 
you don't have to wait, uh, you know, for your results uh, mid-January uh, before we can uh, provisionally uh, approve your application. Uh, secondly, where we do not expect you as an applicant to upload information which has had the unintended effect of some people uh, uploading information um, that is falsified. So the approach is that when you give us your uh, ID number as an applicant, we are able to uh, first and foremost establish that you are a South African citizen, and with that ID number, it's going to give us your biological uh, parental um, uh, relationships, which is uh, where Jeremy in the past has been a sore point in our interaction uh, with the applicants. Because right, and l- let me let me suggest to you that on paper that sounds excellent, but. The question yeah. is, how reliable and secure is that third-party data? Uh, Department of Home Affairs uh, from SASA, also from SARS, that you are going to use for that verification purpose. Uh, there are security risk issues around that, are there not? Well, they would be there, uh, Jeremy, but what are we dealing with here? Um, if I cannot trust information from uh, SARS or from uh, uh, the Department of Home Affairs, which is supposed to have an updated register of South African citizens. Where else can I go? So it is that approach that at least um, those are third party uh, uh, partners of ours that would have also done their own uh, verification because we realize that part of the uh, problem that was stifling our processing of the information was to uh, make ourselves experts in everything. Now, but we know that if uh, we want to ascertain your citizenship, home affairs would be our port of call. If we want to ascertain your financial affairs, uh, SARS would be our port of call. But then we also have a provision that should these validations, as I've uh, enunciated them, not uh, give us the data we want uh, to be able to proceed with the processing of the application, we will then uh, uh, go directly to the applicant and say, provide us with this or that information. But we anticipate that that would be a small cohort uh, of people uh, that we expect um, you know, to deal with. And uh, when we tested the system upon opening it yesterday, we were able within uh, 12 hours to process up to 4,000 uh, um, uh, you, you know, pros- provisionally uh, 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 approved applicants. As I'm talking to you right now, I was just looking at the dashboard on my phone. Over 18,000 have been provisionally uh, approved. All we now need from those that have been approved so far, uh, as an example, is uh, confirmation of their registration at the various institutions. So we also anticipate that there won't be these uh, uh, bottlenecks that we have experienced in the past where students will uh, wait until they get their results on the, around the 20th of uh, uh, January for first-time uh, applicants and then clog the system with their application now that they know they have passed, they can proceed. We are on a major communications drive to say don't wait for your uh, DBE results, at least for the first-time entrance. Uh, apply let us have you on the system when the results come we're not going to ask you to upload the results we are going to get the results um, from the system that dbe has just a quick answer to this one you're also going to have to ensure of course and i'm assuming there are better measures to ensure equitable allocation among eligible students 
Yes, 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 of course. You would remember that um, the um, specific, uh, NSFAS funds a specific category of people in our society at the moment as per policy. It's saying we're targeting uh, the poor and, uh, and indigent uh, applicants who fall under the threshold of 350,000 at the moment. That is government's policy decision. But by no means that those that earn more than that are actually able to pay um, the, uh, the fees at universities. But of course, as per minister's uh, pronouncements yesterday, you would have picked up that he was mentioning the comprehensive uh, student funding po- uh, model that is being navigated uh, through cabinet. And as soon as we have the details on that, I think uh, we will uh, make uh, appropriate uh, uh, pronouncements. Mm. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Slomezi Skosana speaks for NESFAS, and that's where we're going to end the program today. Uh, very quickly, other stories on our radar. News 24 is reporting that SAA has paid its last remaining debt, and that clears the way for the sale of the airline to go ahead. And ESCOM announcing in the early hours of this morning that it pushed load shedding to stage four. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.